Good evening. You are listening to the Year Now podcast. Today is a very special day. It is Mark Honeychurch's birthday. There's not many podcasters who would come and do a podcast on their birthday, but happy birthday, Mark. Thank you very much. And not only am I here for the podcast, but I rushed back to record this podcast from an ACT New Zealand meeting. I, <laughs> I've i done my politics for the night and now I'm not that I'm going to vote ACT, by the way, if anybody's even slightly concerned about that and hasn't read the newsletter and figured out my political opinions. I am not an ACT voter, but I am interested in a their policies but more importantly b the audiences of these things and uh, maybe we can talk about that a little bit more in a few minutes now wasn't mm. it your last last year's birthday gift that you got the um the calling cleanse that we still haven't been able to schedule or was that a christmas gift that was christmas the year before uh, what i got this year hang on if i just move away from the hang, camera, on, hang on hang on oh hang cool stop, 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 look stop, stop. look at that oh, isn't dear. that a cool birthday present i have it a full size plastic skeleton <laughs> Okay. Um, so as you've heard, also joining us this evening is Bronwyn. Hi. I'm recovering. <laughs> I'm, I've injured myself, so uh, trying to be yes. on my best behavior. So you planted your face in the footpath, apparently. Apparently and... I did. It. I got written evidence of my uh, clumsiness, and now I'm walking around with a very nice fashionable sling. <laughs> Lovely. I was tr- thinking I could try and make a joke about Mark would rather punch himself in the face than vote act. And then that reminded me that, well, that's essentially what you've done to yourself. Like, no, I did punch myself in the face. <laughs> <laughs> well, with a footpath. <laughs> well, and now, Craig, also- Craig, the king of segues, missing out on, like, you know, me probably not being offered any homeopathic cures for my broken bone. Okay. All right. Uh, well, we, we'll get to that a bit later. But also joining us this evening, we've got uh, Katrina. Hello. Yes. So, Mark, do you want to wrap it on about your birthday anymore? No, no. But but the act thing, I'm, what I really wanted to talk about was, like, we've, we've done a few political events now. And the one thing that really came home tonight, but it, it was fairly obvious in the previous events, is that I think I'm learning more about the political parties and and more interesting stuff from the audience Q&As. Like what the audience is asking is kind of indicative of, you know, what the voter base is like, not just the demographic, but, you know, specific questions like tonight. We had a question about Agenda 2030 and what is ACT going to do about Agenda 2030. So we're full on in conspiracy territory. There was another guy there trying to sell his $20 book, um, which was about very various things including the evils of co-governance um that one was a really weird one but questions were were weird and wonderful another one about how this guy remembers when he was a kid that one day a, a lorry or a van turned up at the school and took away all the history books and he says he knows three or four people that remember the same thing that he's got this vague memory that there was a national purge of New Zealand's history and that he he's looking to see, A, does anybody else remember this purge of our real history happening? And B, again, what is ACT going to do about it? How How is ACT going to restore the real history of New Zealand, given that it was stolen back in the 1950s and all the books were burned in a field somewhere, apparently? It's quite a, um, quite a difference from when we went to the top political rally uh, a week or so ago, isn't it? 
Yeah. So, I mean, top, you know, again, fascinating audience, but a very different class of question coming from them. You know, think things about the economy and climate and, and other stuff like that. So And cow farts. Uh, oh, yes. And and methane emissions. Yeah. I mean, you know, some really good questions. And then here, basically, um, to, to show how diverse the audience was, the first candidate that was up, he asked, how many of the audience are landlords? How many are business owners? And, and questions like this. And they said, see, we're diverse. Or how many are farmers? And it's like, I don't think that's diversity. We're, you know, this is a very slim class of New Zealand society here. Um, and yes, how there many, are multiple jobs are within that. Workers and teachers. Yeah. And- no questions asked like that. <laughs> or how many were unemployed? Or how many were <laughs> renting? You know, none of those questions. Um, so, yeah, his, his idea of how to prove diversity just to me seemed like exactly the opposite. And um, so we've been talking politics quite a lot lately. And uh, the other the other political news this week <laughs> was the party we've discussed before, which is NZ Loyal. Oh, Liz Gunn. <laughs> and now only going to have two candidates for the general election. So two list candidates. They've, they've got a bunch of electoral candidates, but due to some kind of administrative mess up, they ended up only being able to put two list candidates down. But the spin she did on this, right, Craig, that that was just <laughs> I, I, I don't know if she, even she believed her own spin. But the idea she tried to claim that this was this was her party proving that they're willing to follow up on their own policy of limited government, because here, if they if they get loads of list votes and they've only got two list candidates, then that proves, you know, that they're, they're, they're basically cutting the waste from the top down by only having these two list candidates, even though she'd admitted it was a mistake. Um, and the other thing that really galled me was the fact that she basically tried to say mea culpa, it's my fault, and then blamed everybody except for herself. <laughs> Have you actually managed to find out who the other list candidate is? Not been able to find that out. So one of them was the, so there was the, um, I think one of the funeral directors who was going to be a list candidate, I think, and he ended but up he, he stepped down what? because he was going to be, he was the G, uh, the JP, the Justice Yeah, the so, they, so they, they needed a JP. The they needed one last minute, right? And the only one they could find was one of their own candidates. So he had to drop out because he can't basically sign his own candidacy. And I think he can't sign the candidacy of anybody else for his own party, which is fair enough. Mm. So, yeah, right. it, it just seems like a total like paperwork mess up. But isn't she sort of hinging her hopes on government and that everyone else gives her the party votes so she gets in from 5%? Yeah. She's kind of, she's kind of like, so, and since it's kind of, it's the same as um, top. You know, it's basically yeah. We just want to get Raff into a uh, into parliament on a yeah. party vote, and then yeah, he's not polling well enough in his electorate, really, that it's likely that he'll get in. But if he did, then he would pull all the other people in. But but yeah, I've been trying to figure out whether whether that second candidate was um, Jeanette Wilson. But oh um, no, I think out. I think she's been announced for an electorate. Oh, okay. whatever her local electorate is, I'm so pretty sure no, she's no chance of getting in. Yeah, I mean, good. You know, the fewer psychics we have in Parliament, I think the better we'll be doing as a country. You know, going back to the topic of ACT, I mean, they've also had quite a few candidate dropout uh, this election. Is that sort of unusual or, you know, standard in previous uh, New Zealand elections, just having so many candidates of different parties just... I think it's pretty rare. Pretty rare? Yeah, yeah. I I, I don't recall 
having this sort of I think perhaps the uh the pandemic was a singular event really in that it brought out all the crazies and brought out the craziness in a lot of people and now their social media history has come back to haunt them um, when they've been shown to be making all these um stupid conspiracy theory type comments on social media in their past mm. and um yeah, now you you can't be a candidate for parliament if well you can for some parties, but but not at least not for the mainstream ones generally. Mm. But apparently, Act are doing quite well, as I've just realised now, because ever since I RSVP'd for this event at the end of last week, David Seymour has been personally emailing me every single day. I didn't tick a box to say I wanted emails. I absolutely did not want emails from him, but that has not stopped David Seymour from emailing me. And apparently today's email from three hours ago says that they're up to 12% in one of the latest polls. So that's polling pretty high, whether they can hold that till the election and whether that is even indicative of um, what they'd actually get if the vote was held today, I don't know. But this one poll from TV One apparently is twelve uh, percent for ACT, which seems quite high. Yeah, I think people are pinning their hopes on the polls being wrong, um, and and I guess there's certainly a possibility that the polls could be quite wrong because the way the pollsters go about selecting people to uh, to to ask generally at least in the past has been based upon them having a landline and a lot of people have got rid of their landlines um so i guess that might well skew the polling sample to perhaps the older generation who still have landlines who might be if they made tv1 <laughs> um, yeah. well tv1 don't do it they hire a company to to do the polling for them Oh, okay. Uh, right. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Well, we, anyway, we will we see sh- how it goes. And, and, of course, people, I guess, see these polls and uh, think it's a done deal. And uh, polls themselves may well uh, have an effect on, on the way people vote. If there were no polls, then you might well be free to, to vote your conscience rather than uh, saying, well, if I vote for the small party, I'm going to waste my vote because they're not polling very high. That's mm. the dilemma, isn't it? Oh Well, in this email, I'm seeing that David Seymour is a real Kiwi man because he's catching a rugby ball in a little clip that they've put in there. I mean, that's going to make me less likely to vote for him. I'm not a rugby fan. He's lost me if he hadn't lost me already. What sport would he need to adopt, Mark? Oh, um, oh, so I found a sport the other day that I'm really interested in and I might even get involved in myself, but it's a, it's an e-sport and it's competitive Excel and I'm I'm really keen to give it a go. <laughs> it's in spreadsheeting. Yeah, as in like you do like a three or four hour spreadsheeting competition against other people. Well, there you go. If you want Max vote, you know what to get into. <laughs> Get into competitive no. spreadsheets. Uh, no, Mark, no. I was kind of, I was kind of curious um, regarding tonight's uh, rally whether there was any interruptions by uh, um, certain candidates from Freedoms NZ because they were interrupting David Seymour over the weekend at their launch. Oh, so no, nothing, nothing oh. tonight from them. And we, but have- David Seymour wasn't there. It was we had a couple of smaller time candidates. Okay, because I mean, you know, we do have like advertisements throughout the hut for both Freedoms NZ and vision the vision party and yet you know they're kind of constantly disappointing the hut by not showing their faces and causing an uproar and heckling i'm so disappointed. are they really disappointing the hut i feel disappointing the hut by not stepping up and uh putting their money where their mouth is 
Mm. It would be fun to see one of those disruptions. They they do sound like a clever political stunt for all the annoyingness of them. It, I think there's something smart to that. Like it doesn't cost anything, right? And it gets you in the news. Anyway, okay, so are we done with politics now? Yeah, let let's move on. Okay. Now we've so, lost half of our audience because they don't vote the same that we do. Let let's just carry on. So I listened to a radio interview this week. So one of our um, members uh, sent him an email to the committee alerting us of an interview that was done on Radio New Zealand Afternoons. And it was a segment uh, which is hosted by Jesse Mulligan, and they have a thing called the Expert Feature Series, which runs on Monday afternoons. And the topic of this particular expert segment was... Uh, near-death experiences. Mm. Now, have any of you ever had a near-death experience? Yeah, Bronwyn hit the uh, pavement the <laughs> other day. <laughs> well, I don't think it was a near-death experience. I, I saw money flash before, before my eyes when I considered it possible. <laughs> Dental cop the fee to see a dentist if my teeth had been cracked. All right, but you didn't see the light at the end of the long, dark tunnel then? No, no. Uh, I think if I was going to die of anything, it would have been an embarrassment because there was another mm. runner coming behind me who did not help me. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow rude wow that's not nice that's no i don't it. but but i potentially may have recovered and picked myself off the ground and not looked at anybody you know my face was yeah. looking a little bit gross <laughs> so Anyways. uh this interview was the particular expert uh was associate professor natasha tassel matamua from massey university school of psychology and so the interview went on for about half an hour and i listened to it and it was very pro ndes being some sort of a spiritual experience. Uh, this is her research topic. So I did a bit of background reading around NDEs, and I guess many of us have sort of heard of them. Um, they were sort of popularized back in the 1970s. There was a psychiatrist um, by the name of Dr. Robert Moody who wrote a book called Life After Life, and uh, in the book he concluded that near-death experiences were proof of an afterlife that consciousness carries on after after you die, uh, of which there was, there was a lot of uh, pushback on that. But the, the interesting thing in the interview, in the interview is that um, the interest that Natasha has in NDEs was stimulated because when she was at university, she claimed that she had an NDE. Um, so she was saying that one day she was sick and uh, she essentially passed out and had this experience that later on, when she related it, sounded like an NDE. But it it could well have just been a fever dream, I think. Um, yeah, that's Probably an interesting thing here, you know, if, if there is a consistency to the reports that isn't being informed by previous reports where people aren't just polluted by this, then there might be some interesting psychological phenomenon to take out of this. But to treat it like it's a spiritual thing without good evidence that that's the case seems mm. a little bit like jumping the gun here. Yeah. Um, so she claimed that she had never heard of NDEs. Now, doing the maths on what she described in dates, it sounded like she was at the university in the late 1990s and she had this dream or whatever it was, this experience and claimed that she'd never heard of NDEs before. Well, I remember going and seeing that awful movie called Flatliners back in about 1990, um, mm. where a bunch of medical students were uh, essentially stopping their hearts to see what would happen uh, and actually generate a near-death experience and then bringing, bringing themselves back to life. A movie, it, a movie uh, so bad that they remade it. <laughs> 
Indeed. In about 2017. Yes. But I, I, I won't have you uh, bad-mouthing 1990s Julia Roberts. How dare you? Oh, I had forgotten that Julia Roberts is in it. But, yeah, okay. But, yes, it, well, that was, a, that was a horror movie, though, because um, the NDEs got worse and worse, and um, they actually manifested in people being beaten up in real life. Um, so, yes, it took on some sort of fantasy horror kind of aspects to it, I think. So the assistant professor is in the psychology department, and one of the comments she made in the interview was that when she was training in psychology, they were taught that the consciousness is produced by the brain. But during this interview, uh, she said she was taught that consciousness is manufactured by the brain, but that NDEs call that into question. Um, so she's definitely sort of on the on the slant of saying that NDEs, the these experiences, uh, somehow therefore prove that that we consciousness have a soul is not or something. actually yes that 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 we have a soul. Um, now during the interview, um, so Radio New Zealand takes text from listeners, and a a particular listener by the name of Tom um, sent in a text which said. I hope your discussion on NDEs is going to include perfectly rational explanations as well as the supernatural. We all have the same brain structure and brain chemistry. Why would we be surprised if people had similar experiences near death? The tunnel and the light is more likely to be the brain shutdown sequence. So I thought that was a good a good sceptical comment, but it wasn't explored very deeply in the interview. Uh, most of the interview was uh, taken up with kind of the spiritual side of things. I guess one of the one of the important things to think about is what the implications of this would be. Um, so one of the things that they talk about with NDEs is that people have out-of-body experiences. So they report sort of floating above their body and being able to see uh, doctors working on them trying to resuscitate them. Well, there was a study that was done back about 10 years ago called the AWARE study, where they did experiments in hospitals in the US. They had about 25 different hospitals participating in this study. And one of the features of the study was that they put these um, signs on the top of shelves in the uh, hospital rooms so that if people were having an an out-of-body experience where they were literally floating above their body, when they interviewed these people who they'd managed to resuscitate uh, and bring back to life, none of them reported seeing these uh, signs that were placed on top of these shelves. So that certainly is an absence of evidence for uh, the out-of-body experience being a literal floating above your body. Um, and it also makes me think, well, uh, if if you're able to see and hear things by floating out of your body, that kind of makes me think that, well, what are your eyes and your ears for? If, you're, if your spirit or your soul can see and hear without um, having to have the eyes in place, how does that work? It seems to be a very simple mistake that's made with with this is the idea that somehow any soul that we would have would have all the faculties of our physical body. Yeah, it would have identical ability to hear and see and touch and feel and all these things. And it's like, but 
where's the plausibility to this? You know, if we if a soul's a real thing, it's probably going to be a, some weird ball of something. It's it's not going to have ears and eyes. Um, mm. Yeah, it's it's just weird. it's like childish thinking, basically. You know, and that I that idea that when you get to heaven, you will be the perfect version of you, whatever age you want, and that everything will be fine. And it's like just wishful thinking. There's no mm. evidence for it. So I think perhaps all of this is biased by people's um, sort of motivated reasoning, um, thinking that, okay, well, I would like my consciousness to continue after I die, and therefore uh, NDEs provide some hope that this is a real thing, that I'm going to meet up with my family after I die and Mm. so on. I guess that's an understandable thing to want. I mean, the idea that this is our only life and there's nothing after that, it can be a little bit scary, but you kind of got to be grown up and and face up to the fact that it looks very likely that is it. We have one life. We should do something interesting with it, something positive, because, yeah, there's no evidence of anything else, no matter how much you wish it were true. Yes. Anyway, I'm going to be writing all of this up in the newsletter coming out this weekend. And I love so, the fact that you're you're adding the ubies as well because that as a kid that fascinated me the idea of being able to have an out of body experience was like oh can I can I force one is there any way of inducing this? <laughs> well, that, that's uh, I guess what your part of what your brain is doing when you when you go dreaming. Um, so a, a good resource to look at on this, of course, is um, Dr. Stephen Novella of the SGU podcast. Uh, he's a uh, neurologist and so he knows a bit about the brain and he has uh, quite a quite a quite a bit to say about uh ndes and uh how he thinks that uh, they are not indicative of anything except the brain doing what it does so yes look out for that this weekend okay now i have to come up with a fantastic segue to introduce the autistic member of our of our podcast, or at least one of them. I reckon I'm autistic as well, but whatever. Oh God! Oh, I'm I'm sure we could all self-report and and self-diagnose. <laughs> yeah, skeptics seem to have, I'd say, certain things in common with uh, with autism. Well, I'm not yes. here to toot anyway. my own horn, but I do have a clinical diagnosis, so it's not a self-identified thing here. Okay, all right. So, firstly, do you want to be cured? No. No, good. <laughs> but is it possible to cure autism? Uh, no. <laughs> hey, okay, well, that was a good segment. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I mean, no. I, I would say that our current science um would make would say no. Um, we don't have that capacity. However, there are occupational therapies that can, you know, particularly the you know, as it always is with these with occupational therapy, the younger that you can, the younger your patient is or the client is, you know, the better outcomes that you can have. However, you know, with the next little series that I'm doing with the newsletter, I'll be looking into some of those therapies, such as applied behavioral analysis and just looking at the evidence behind them. Some therapies are presented as, if not a cure, then certainly a panacea for all the problems and all the struggles for autism. And that's just not the case in reality. But I didn't want to start with that sort of the most controversial thing when it comes to autism. The least controversial thing, uh, surprisingly, is a miracle mineral supplement or sometimes you'll see it read as a miracle mineral um solution solution which is essentially bleach (laughs) or it's chlorine you know it's a it's a mix it's chlorine mixed with a bit of vinegar or some sort of citric acid so strong though it's a pretty much a water purification it's sold as water purification solution in new zealand um you die it's about 28 percent strength and people 
drink it in a very dilute solution. Sometimes, though, a lot of children received it from their parents as enemas. And it's believed that this solution will cure anything, not just autism. Um, it was originally marketed by a an American, oh God, named Jim Humble. Now, Jim Humble is a very interesting character. He came up with Miracle Mineral Solution, or MMS, as we'll call it for the rest of the podcast. He came up with that while he was working down in South America um, as a gold prospector. Uh, Jim has has made tons of claims. The most ridiculous is uh, that he's a million-year-old god from the Alexandria solar system. Um, But he's also claimed that he's been part of like building the first computer. He's just Mm an absolute grifter. I think at one point he may have been claiming that he was part of the Manhattan Project. <laughs> There's no evidence that he's been part of any of these things, but, you know, grifter's going to grift. But the whole story, when I was looking into the MMS story and the church that him and his friend Mark Grennan created, which is called the Genesis 2 Church for he- Health and Healing, absolutely fascinating. There are I've only come across one story that said, oh, yeah, he purchased his archbishop title from some other church and that's why it's called Genesis two. Um, I think the closer truth to that story is that him and Mark Grennan sort of connected because Mark thought that the chlorine helped cure his MRSA, which is um, a type of staph infection that can be quite nasty and hard to hard to pass, particularly if you're not taking, you know, the standard medication for it. And they just decided to start this business, but same with Scientology. And it's, this was a very similar uh, tactic that L. Ron Hubbard used back in the 50s. Rather than calling it a business, they decided to call it a church. Because if you call it a church, you can, you know, get lots of, you know, tax kickbacks, you get your charity status. And what they could do is rather than selling, well, I shouldn't say rather than selling, they sell it anyways. You know, rather than promoting and distributing MMS as what it is, they could say it's a sacrament. All the products that they're selling are religious sacraments so they could just bypass all the uh, import laws and tax laws that way by mm. saying it's an important religious item for the rituals now of course um it's pretty easy to become a, health, a minister of health or a health minister within the church of health and healing it costs 646 dollars new zealand you go to a three-day seminar and you'll get your certificate and that certificate gives you all the rights and privileges as a uh, archbishop or a minister of the church, and you can go on and sell the products on your own accord. So it's kind of like a multi-level marketing business, but I think the um, the margins are a fair amount better than a lot of multi-level marketing companies <laughs> out there today. And um, I guess that's mainly because it just it costs a pittance to make, right? So it's almost yeah. pure profit, I'd imagine. Yeah, and when I was doing my research, um, so many interesting stories that involve New Zealand or New Zealanders. The biggest one was a was the death of a woman named Sylvia Fink. She was Australian, and her and her husband had lived in New Zealand for two years before they um, decided to go on sailing, and they were sailing out to the Vanuatu Islands. During somehow in the past, in, in the two or three years previous to this trip, Sylvia had bought some MMS because it was advertised as a malaria cure, and that's what she wanted to avoid. Whether she bought it. In New Zealand, or she ordered it from overseas, is unclear. But um, it, it, what is true is that she did buy it from a Nevada-based company. And about three to four years after her death, the owner of that Nevada-based company was um, sentenced to about five years in jail on his own for um, selling such products. So 
For poor Sylvia Fink, they were traveling in Vanuatu. She was starting to feel really, really ill on the boat. She took some of this MMS just once. And then within 12 hours, she was dead. Whoa. Mm -hmm. And so her husband, you know, absolutely devastated. So he's been the one who's sort of on the news whenever this story comes up or whenever MMS comes up and the risk of MMS, he'll show up. He has a story and and he has made official claims, which sort of contributed to the owner of the company that she bought it from going to jail. Because, you know, you're essentially you're you're drinking, you know, your MMS is even when it's diluted, it's still a pretty heavy duty cleaning product. So you're destroying your the the intestinal lighting. You can cause vomiting, diarrhea, bleeding. It's not nice stuff. And a lot of people will just buy it. And, you know, they're so desperate. They think, oh, I'm going to give this to my child 16 times a day. I'm going to give them four or five enemas and they're going to bathe in it. And so, you know, what you have are children, particularly children and sometimes adults being exposed to high doses because they're just so desperate. And a lot of these problems do occur in the U.S. because the medical system is so appallingly expensive. Um, You know, if you want therapies for autism and you have a child, you are looking at spending like, you know, 50, 60 grand a year. And that's on the low end. Yeah, I used to have a work colleague who uh, had two daughters he'd split from his wife and he started getting weirder and weirder. And one of the things he did, I I don't think he was buying MMS. I think he was making his own bleach solution at home. But he was giving it. Seems pretty simple. (laughs) Absolutely. But it was a preventative, not just for him, but he was forcing his two teenage daughters to drink this stuff as well. Uh, And he had this story about how the electrons in the bleach, they were like a key with five prongs that would unlock the outside of a cell. And because of this, this was going to stop them getting sick. And it was, uh, it was like really disappointing. Like, you know, if he wants to drink bleach himself, that's his own lookout. But when you've got dependents and you do something silly like that to them, totally different matter. And, um, you know, there was at least one case, I think in 2017, where a six-year-old died. Um, well, no, not died. As far as I know, she had liver failure because her parents was, were giving her MMS solution at six. Um, There's a really interesting case in 2014 that I read, an academic case study in the British Medical Journal. And it was of a 41-year-old Malay woman who um, just came up with this really weird disease. Not a proper disease. It just seems like a really weird cause of a 16-day fever. But the fever only kicked off after she received a drink of MMS that she did not prepare. So she didn't know what the um, toxicity or the um, strength of the solution was, but it was given to her by a relative who had just arrived from New Zealand. Oh. So somehow um, this relative picked it up. Whether, it's again, we don't know. New, New Zealand. Zealand's a dodgy place. New Zealand's always a dodgy <laughs> place when it comes to these cults and um, organizations. And then finally, um, in two, we have the most famous purveyor of MMS in New Zealand, which is Roger Blake. He lives in Natia. He's been selling MMS since about 2007. He was quite instrumental in bringing Jim Humble over to New Zealand about 2014, 2015. And they had a three-day seminar at um, Blake's Natia business, which is a gardens and function center. It was a really funny story that it came across of an Auckland man who's like, oh, I don't really care about, you know, I'm going to ignore the doctor's claims that this stuff is, you know, dangerous. But what Blake had been doing is saying, oh, yes, yes, yes. The cost to attend a seminar is $646, but I'll also accept donations. 
yes, he's accepting donations, but he wasn't going to take the $30 that this Aquaman was going to offer for a three-day seminar. He wanted at least $200 of a donation a day to cover the catering. <laughs> so um, the Aquaman got kicked out. Surely so at some best. point, someone's going to notice that this isn't working. Well, and, no, well, well, the thing is, since 2000 and t- like uh, 2010, 29, 2010, MMS and the how that it doesn't work and that's dangerous um, has been on the radar of MedSafe, of the FDA. There's always news reports. There's always warnings, but it seems that it only took um, COVID for anyone to, for the government to actually sort of start kicking up, um, at least certainly in the US, starting to do something about it. Uh, so in about 2020, Mark Grenon, who is sort of the co-bishop of this whole Church of Health and Healing, um, his both the Columbia property that he was living on with one of his sons and the Florida property in which two of his sons were running the business were raided by the FDA. So they've sort of just this year, I think in the past couple of months, they finally, the court, the case has finally been um, settled and Mark Renan and his family are guilty of uh, medical, of making medical claims and distributing and selling and mislabeling products as medicine. Five or six days after that raid was happening in July 2020, Robert Blake's, both his business and I believe his home, were um, raided by MedSafe under the Medicines Act. So a computer, a computer that contained all the information regarding the customers in New Zealand, that was taken. The course and the wheels churning for the justice against Mr. Blake have uh, moved very slowly. He is just not attending court sometimes. And when he does, he's pulling a lot of the um, sovereign citizen tricks that we know and definitely do not love, claiming that he's not Mr. Blake. So, um, I've never have- heard of a MedSafe raid before. Is that a thing they do? Not, um- of- not often. But the thing is, because, um, you know, what, ha- what sort of starting to kick this off was back in April 2020, you have... President Trump going on national going on a national press release or um press junket press talk- yeah. yeah press conference, press conference. And, and talking about you know yes uh, why can't we get these injectable bleach he was talking about that and you know people really realize oh wait this is getting this is getting bad because the work of Genesis 2 church was really starting to probably be quite dangerous particularly in the face of covid-19 that's when people started really paying attention yeah, I'm sure that it, uh, the MMS would have killed COVID in a petri dish. Doesn't mean well, you I mean, I mean, it I mean, into your body. Well, I mean, it, it is. It's clean. I'm not sure if necessarily it's um, the components are what components are used for cleaning in New Zealand hospitals. But I mean, it's a, it's a cleaner. It is used in hospitals. Um, Susie Wiles yeah. was quoted in one of the articles about MSS in the past. So it is effective, but it's not something you can possibly ingest because yes, it's going to kill COVID because it's going to kill you. <laughs> Yes, we don't want that happening. But the, but the problem is, I mean, and I think this is the ultimate thing for me, you know, it's been over 10 years. We've known that MMS does not work. The claims are false. Yet it, it takes COVID for the government to do anything about its distribution in New Zealand and not the potential endangerment of, you know, hundreds or thousands of disabled children. Mm. I guess given that, you know, they have managed to tie this to a church and, you know, I think it's advertised as such in New Zealand as well. It, yeah. Governments generally are reluctant to go after religious groups. It doesn't look good for them. They they tend to be quite scared. But I think the evidence mm. is quite clear that's not a proper religious group. <laughs> Destiny Church is more of a religious group than 
you right. know it and I know yeah. it, but whether the government's willing to risk that everybody knows that is another matter. And mm. there will be certain religious groups that they'll see it as the thin end of the wedge. Oh, my goodness. This this one that hardly looks like a religion is getting in trouble with the government. But I also don't look massively like a religion. I'm probably next. I guess there is an argument to be made that uh, in in the face of a pandemic where at least initially there was no vaccine, people were probably searching around for something that could protect them. And um, well, if, well, if, if there's something it's, that is advertised that can do it's that. It's the claims. It, the big yeah. one was it was the claims that they were also they were starting to claim that this could cure COVID. <laughs> Hmm. So, you know, you exactly. have that legislation that was probably in place that made it easier to, I guess, in some way made it easier for them to act. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yes, if, if everybody's scared of COVID, I guess there then becomes a mass market for something that could supposedly cure it versus hmm. uh, a kind of smaller market for people who uh, see this as a solution for their whatever ails them kind of thing, I guess. Yeah. It's a watch the space as it always is with my stories. Um We'll see if they have to make some decision about the Blake case, because it, I guess it will come to a point where, you know, it's like, you know, they can't make a decision. They can't necessarily um, get all the evidence. So is that fair for Blake in terms of justice? Hmm. What's he actually being charged with? Um, I think it's um, quite a few things, again, in terms of um, mislabeling as a medicine. Right. So advertising distribution. Act. Yeah. Right. Hmm. Okay. Well, I wonder if... Uh, I wonder if that would be classified as a natural health product and whether it would fall underneath the natural health products act that has come into being that Katrina is going to tell us about. Well, I mean, he is actually, he was actually deliberately selling it like not as a MMS, but as a water purification. So, uh, but yet plain, you know, using it as a medicine, but claim, you know, selling it under its proper title. So it's a. Bronwyn, you, you just totally missed that segue. You just. I know I did, but I'm just making a correction here. Past you. No, it didn't. I'm just making a correction here. Oh, my God. A correction at the expense of Craig's segue? That I is know. rude. No, it's not. <laughs> Look, I, I have no idea whether the therapeutic products that covers sacraments or not. It would be interesting <laughs> to look into, and I guess it depends on whether it falls in the definition of a natural health therapy, and we are still waiting on regulations to support the act, so it's a bit of a mystery, but... Yeah, that's an interesting point, something I have to look into. Mm. Um, yes, so, so should I talk about that? Yes, you should. <laughs> okay. Um, so a wee while back, um, we made a submission on the new Therapeutic Products Act, which has now been passed into law. So that, um, I guess this piece of legislation hasn't been overhauled in almost 40 years. And so this replaces the Medicine Act and the dietary supplements regulations, and it is an entirely new regulatory regime, so all of that stuff's out the door. There's a new one, but it doesn't come into effect until 1 September 2026. So what they're going to need to do before then over the next three years is develop the regulations that sit behind it, which is basically all the rules around the operation of it. So the point of this act is to assure the quality and safety of therapeutic products. And what it's doing is modernising the legislation a little bit. So a whole bunch of things around um, technology um, will be brought in. So that includes devices, potentially 
some cell phone apps that are doing diagnostic things. Some of them I know measure your heart rate and say things, but also in medical uh, some medical devices and some cell and gene and tissue therapies, things that didn't exist 40 years ago. It also brings natural health therapies into scope. So they weren't really, there was medicine or dietary supplements, but there wasn't really anything that covered natural health therapies very well. Um, But it's not intended to stop people buying them unless there is robust scientific evidence to justify restricting it. And that's mainly around safety. So the legislation as it stands less concerned about whether the natural health therapies work or not. And it's more concerned about will someone get hurt or die. So I guess the regulations are really going to determine what the act means in practice. So we've got all this stuff down here, but in terms of what is done, in terms of monitoring, how reactive they are if people report things, what kind of screening goes on before natural health therapies are given market authorization, that's all kind of where the rubber hits the road. So if that's all loosey-goosey self-assessments and they don't really look, um, obviously it's going to have much less effect than if they've got a rigorous regime in place. So we did a submission. Um, so Mark and Bronwyn went along and spoke to the legislators and gave an oral submission as well. Um, and so what I'm going to talk a bit about today is what happened with the things we made submissions on and what are the main changes in the Act that have been made. And um, probably up front, I'll just talk about some areas that I think we could be thinking about and working on in the next three years so that we can help make sure the regulation has the outcomes that we want it to make. Mm. Um, And so there is some consultation required as part of that. It says to the affected people and parties, so it may not include us, but that doesn't mean we can't stick our nose in. So as part of this, there's actually a really interesting piece of research done. It was um, commissioned by the Ministry of Health, and they got a company called Sapiers. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but they did a rapid literature review on the evidence of harm in relation to natural health products. And that is really important because that's driving some of the changes that are good changes that have been made in the proposed legislation. So they found that the safety of NHPs are not always guaranteed and they identified adverse events associated with the use of NHPs, particularly in relation to some studies finding that herbal products are associated with liver injury. Now, um, liver injury is really interesting. I've heard a liver doctor talk about this on another podcast. It's actually one of the main mechanisms where people can be harmed by taking all sorts of things and particularly natural health therapies, but not a lot of people apparently are interested in liver health. But it is actually an interesting area and it's really important. I know if you've ever had an elderly cat, you would, or an animal, quite often the tests are all around, you know, their liver and their kidney health and things like that. And the liver's pretty critical for how long Mm. you're going to last. So um, the study is online and the link to that is in our newsletter article. If you want to pull it up, I think it might be the article before last. 
they they found the incidence of serious events was generally low, but they don't know if this is due to them being safe or people just aren't reporting things or it's not really getting investigated. But they did kind of find a smoking gun and that people can be harmed by these. If you are interested, there's a website, if you Google um, liver tox, um, what you'll come up with is a website which is it's on a, it's in a thing called NCBI bookshelf and you can go in there and there's a list of various products and it actually gives a liver toxicity rating and um, from A to D and all the backgrounds and the mechanism by which it can harm you. So, for example, there are things on there like aloe vera, which is a B score, second highest score, quinine, another B, Vitamin A, level A, so it's well-established cause of liver injury when you take too much of it. So those sorts of things there. So if you're interested in uh, researching some sort of product that's come out, um, sometimes you might be able to find that ingredient on that site and have a peek. Anyway, sidetracked. Potential areas for activism, I think, um, between now and 1 September, uh, looking at the regulatory process, so we're aiming for a real proactive assessment before people are allowed to sell a product that's before the market authorisation, rather than a reactive one where they just kind of let people in or they self-assess and then we have to make a complaint before any kind of action is taken. Mm. So practically, how will we go about interacting with the regulators to help them build a process that we like. Yeah, so that's the trick because they haven't built consultation process yet and they haven't even said who they're going to. But I, I do think we know it's the Ministry of Health that are building this, so we can hunt them down. And so if they don't create that channel, we could approach them directly and put some cogent things together and see whether we could be on their stakeholder mm, okay. array of people that they might sort of talk to. So I think we might, if it's not sort of an obvious process, I think we could potentially stick our oar in anyway um, mm. as people who might be able to provide some useful input. And that will tick their box too, that they have, you know, done some co- consultation with the various segments. So I think, you know, that's something mm. we could do. Because um, the last thing we want is the, all the natural health practitioners having the ear of uh, the Ministry of Health and uh, the rational mm. science-based people having no input. I can guarantee you they're already emailing the Ministry of Health for contacting <laughs> them. So, um, yes, yeah. we, we do need to make sure that we're having input. Um, the other one is these, these lists uh, of NHPs, natural health product ingredients that will be allowed. Um, so we can have input on those and barrel in with that any evidence of harm that we have. So things like the Livertox website is helpful, but there's, there's more evidence out there. We could also have input on the rules for substantiating health benefit claims. So they haven't been established yet. Um, so there is the ability to add a bit of science there if it's lacking and the uh, one area that they are going to lean on quite heavily for the health benefit claims for natural health products is the pharmacopoeia. 
So these are big encyclopedias of various herbal or natural remedies um, and what their benefits are. If we have some evidence that a traditional use is no, no longer applies or it's outdated, even if it's in the pharmacopoeia, we can submit that and that is a reason under the new legislation to have it taken out. And again, the evidence of harm and also which pharmacopoeia will be adopted. So there are a wide variety of pharmacopoeia. Some of them are worse than others. Um, so I think um, some are great, right? So like the, the British pharmacopoeia, the American, I think there's a European pharmacopoeia. These are lists of medical drugs. These are prescription mm. drugs. What are their interactions? What are their side effects? What different things can they treat? And then you get the Ayurvedic pharmacopoeia and the homeopathic pharmacopoeia. And you're well into nonsense territory. And th this really is from the first time I read this legislation. This really was my main concern was like the fact that even now they've not mentioned which one they're they're using and which ones they're not going to use is a massive red flag especially given that the last effort to legislate this the natural health products bill that didn't end up going through the pharmacopoeia they listed in there were all sorts of crazy and if they just lift and reuse that list this is going to be horrible it's going to be an uphill battle because they're basically going to whitelist thousands and thousands of different alternative therapies for hundreds if not thousands of medical conditions when none of them are proven to work. It's going to be horrible. Yeah, and I feel like you're right, and they're just going to lift that list um, unless we interfere with it. And so I guess that's an area for a bit of activism. So it's absolutely worth doing the work up front here as it will save a lot of work down the track because if once the rules and regulations are put in place, we'll have to tackle them one by one to get the unsafe ingredients, the health claims, the pharmacopoeia out of the system. So if we can stop them getting in there in the first place, that will solve a whole array of issues. We won't have to deal with supplier by supplier, ingredient by ingredient. We can just get it sorted before it becomes a thing. And if we can influence some of those things, like what evidence or rules are required, you know, in terms of health benefit claims, that just deals with a whole bunch of health benefit claims that could be made down a track right at the source. You know, we can say that's not meeting the rule. So I really feel like that's the area we need to be in. There um, have been some shifts in the Act. There have been a whole lot of submissions we made, which went nowhere, probably to be expected, unfortunately. The market authorization, unfortunately, the efficacy of natural health therapies remains outside the scope of the legislation. So, um, but the final legislation has added a requirement that the applicant must, underline must, satisfy the regulator about the health benefits being claimed. So, how much that will impact the change will depend entirely on how proactive the regulator does these assessments. But um, ultimately, it's still looking like it might be a self-assessment process. So when we first looked at it in the notes to the legislation, it was saying that it would prima facie accept claims and just, you know, someone submitted something, it would be accepted and then it would go up as a natural health product. Um, it's not quite that bad. It is saying that they must satisfy the regulator, but it just comes down to how much they enforce that now. There's some uh, positive change there, 
but we just need to see how that's going to go through in terms of the implementation. Sounds like there might of, be an opportunity there for uh, if, if those sort of uh, self proclaimed products kind of go through that maybe the skeptics could come up with some sort of parody product that uh, that basically showcased the ridiculousness of the regulations. Yeah, yeah, maybe we could submit our own products or something. I don't know. It just yeah. we definitely don't want a default process. It does feel like they're going away from that. They realise there's some harm that can be caused and a whole lot of trouble there. It's feeling a little bit more resourced up than it was from what was proposed at the start, which looked like it was, we'll create a system and it will mm. do the thing. But um, right. it feels a bit more like there will be an eye on it, but we just need to see what they do. The pharmacopias, we talked about that, and they are included as proof of tra- traditional use. So whatever pharmacopia is adopted, if someone needs to prove traditional use and it's listed in a pharmacopoeia, that will be seen as evidence. Now, we, we, our submission, we said that was rubbish. That is not scientific evidence and it shouldn't be in there. However, they have changed a few things in there. So under the original proposed law, health benefit claim about an NHP may, may be substantiated by scientific evidence or evidence of traditional use or both, the health committee considered that claims about the product should not be permitted if there was no scientific evidence or evidence of traditional use. They have therefore replaced may with must. So they need scientific evidence or traditional use, but unfortunately that still brings the pharmacopoeia into it when you're looking at traditional use. So there's a giant loophole and the pharmacopoeias are essentially defining traditional treatment so um but however they have created a way of combating that so if you can produce recent traditional evidence to the contrary for that ingredient then you can get it pulled that's a good thing yeah yeah i think that that is good i don't know quite my brain's sort of spinning around trying to think of an example where that would apply but um i think you just throw everything yeah, I, I, I can't help but think that the may must thing is just a language thing. They realized they'd use the wrong word. I mean, it was obvious even from the may wording that they were saying you will need either scientific evidence or historical evidence. Somebody just will have pointed out, hey, may is a little bit of a soft word. Must is generally what's used in legislation. I think, you know, I, I don't think it's anything that probably would have ever got through. It's something they probably would have tightened up anyway. So somebody used yeah. sloppy wording. It's been fixed. I, I don't think it's a big win, unfortunately. Um, yeah, there's another one where they, the same sort of section where they replace prima facie, meaning we'll take your word for evidence with sufficient evidence. So, yeah, who knows? But prima facie was never going to make the grade. That's prima facie cases. You've made a claim and it's not completely spurious, <laughs> you, know, like, you know, without testing any evidence from anybody else. So it was just not a useful word to have in legislation. So, yeah, um, worrying that it hinges on traditional evidence around use rather than scientific evidence around efficacy, but we should still be able to argue harm if we can prove it. There is a new section in the legislation, wrong Um So this essentially is for Māori traditional wrong medicine. Um, so a wrong 
practitioner essentially have sovereignty over their own practice under the Treaty of Waitangi. And as far as natural health products go, they'll be responsible for self-regulating these activities as far as they see fit. Um, And it's unlikely there'll be much ability for us to interfere except where there is evidence of significant safety risks. So I guess what I would say around that is just to watch whether we start to see non-Māori practices trying to adopt rongoa label or have themselves recognised as rongoa practitioners or associates, which is a category if you're working with a rongoa practitioner, you're a rongoa associate. So there is potentially the ability for people to expand the practice and hopefully not to people that shouldn't, you know, aren't actually practicing that. So I don't know what will happen with that. But I guess what they've done is rather than barrel all traditional um, natural health therapies into one, they've actually just carved out the one that the treaty applies to, which is Māori health practices, not any other Mm. cultures. Well, they they probably had to do that under treaty obligations anyway, so... Yes, it, it seems so. So it is yeah. what it is, I think, in that regard. Um, so it's just, I guess, keeping an eye on whether people are misusing that in ways that they shouldn't and they wouldn't be protected by the treaty. Mm. They're not wrong our practitioners. They're just using that yeah. as their label. bit like the uh, Genesis Church using religion as a cover. We said we would like to see the inclusion of the ability in anyone in New Zealand to apply to the regulator to have health benefit claim removed from the allowed list if it shows it was ineffective, misleading or dangerous. The ineffective one, we didn't win. Dangerous, yes, that's something we can do. Misleading, there is some stuff under the advertising that allows you to do that, but I think you'd probably need to link it to the health benefit claims again, so it will depend a bit on the regulation. The interesting that the health committee goes a little bit further than the ambulance in the bottom of the hill and, and, and is looking at heading off the health benefit claims at registration. So the, the committee suggested a member which has been made to enable businesses to substantiate a relationship between a natural health product or ingredient against the pre-approved list of health benefits and qualifiers set out in the rules. But we don't know what the rules are yet. But they don't have to. But if they want to make a health benefit claim, then they can substantiate that. And I think that would be really interesting material to see. I don't know how much of that will be available under the Official Information Act, um, whether there will be commercial things there. But I, I do think it's a little bit of a shift So we just need to watch and see what those rules are going to be there around the health benefit claims because there's not a lot in the legislation to indicate how that would play out exactly. In the advertising, we submitted that verbal statements should be covered in the advertising rules and the health committee reports that this is a report that was done making recommendations about the legislation that should be adopted. They made some comment relevant to our submission about a thing called astroturfing and what that is is disguising a professionally orchestrated public relations or marketing campaign by presenting it as having arisen from unsolicited public comments or grassroots support. So it's, you know, someone's on Facebook and they go, wow, my whole life has turned around since I started 
taking these sachet drinks and it's just amazing and you you know you should try it too kind of thing but then they're actually running some sort of MLM business that's selling I, the stuff um, I just want sure to shake, I want to shake the hand of the person that came out with the term astroturfing because it's describing an artificial grassroots thing and I think as a name it's just genius it really yeah. is a very clever play on words. <laughs> yes. So and I'm impressed that it the word was used and is actually quite a long paragraph on it in the health committee report. It just makes you feel a little bit like there might be some allies and out there, some sen- sensible people that are interested in science and the well being of New Zealanders. And <laughs> you read that and you're just like, good. So they have basically put some words in the legislation that would allow them to put regulations in place to limit what people say and how this is distributed. So although it doesn't tell you how that will go, they have put this in response to astroturfing. So presumably they are envisaging that they might want to use that to control how advertising is distributed, and it also states that the advertising must not contain misleading information, and that is specifically to prevent astroturfing. So, again, good. That's the intention. Um, I imagine that'll be very hard to police, though. Yes, and I think that's where it all comes down to the crunch. We can't do this for them. You know, the regulator will need to monitor and regulate and we don't want to have to be running around or members of the public running around and reporting things in order for it to get fixed. That's the bit I'm interested yeah. in. Yeah. And I, along with Daniel Ryan, I have sat in a meeting with one of the regulators in the past, MedSafe, and talked to them about how they police this. And their answer was basically that I think the word tsunami was used, that it there was such a tsunami of claims out there and they are so understaffed that they have no ability at all to proactively go out and find the problems they purely rely on reporting that is how they find out where there are issues they are not looking for it and i'm very concerned that it's going to be exactly the same with this new legislation that they're not going to have a department they're not even going to have a single staff member who's looking for people making bad claims they're just going to sit back and wait for people like us to complain which is not good enough yeah that's my concern too Hmm. we also asked that direct advertising of prescription medicines now not natural health therapies be prohibited they haven't put that in the law as such, but they have created a mechanism there so that that could be done so we they can prohibit advertising of a specified class of therapeutic product to a specified class of a person or spe- in specified circumstances. So they can do that if they wish to do so. <laughs> um, yes, but will they? <laughs> I don't sounds like know. Very, it feels like, like they may be sitting on the They field. may. They may. It's not must. <laughs> Very specified legal wording there that they have specified specifically. Yes, so we will see. We also asked for, um, hey, can we make sure there's a process for fast track takedowns so that dodgy therapeutic products 
don't stay on the market while they're being investigated. They haven't made a lot of change here, but there is a thing called moratorium order in there. So they've got special powers in the Act to allow the regulator to require information to be provided, require samples and testing into premises. They can issue recall orders and premise restriction orders for safety reasons. They can issue an advertising remediation order to retrieve an advert from distribution, destroy it, distribute a retraction, remove it from an internet site under the person's control. Yeah, I know there's a loophole there. Yep, they can ask someone to stop selling something, um, shut them down, remove all the advertising if they wanted to under this legislation. But will they? Who knows? So that ends the ones where I've got positive things to say, (laughs) a list of things that got nowhere, which I'm not going to go through, but they are all in the article if you want to have a look and see where those claims got. And the only other notable thing that we didn't make a submission on, but has been changed in legislation, isn't a good news story. It's small-scale natural health product manufacturers do not need market authorization, which you heard that right. (laughs) where their products are made and supplied in person to customers in New Zealand. So the product authorization is still required for if it's imported, and that's consistent with some of the other products under the legislation, such as the low concentration NHPs, i.e. homeopathic treatments, or those made by a practitioner as part of consultation for a client, which is like bespoke kind of things. Um, So that's still in there. They can still make a personalised therapy for someone and now they're small scale but it doesn't really give an indication of what they mean by that and how widely that will be applied so it's got to be made and supplied in person so um, I guess there is some protection there that naturopaths can't go out and start mass marketing a concoction that they've come up with without having some sort of authorization to be able to do it. Yeah, correct. So I think it it's sort of it's still more in that one to one space, but I guess again whether people figure out a way to sort of blur the lines on that. So that by might cover putting a, f- a body in front of people, but essentially they're running a big business and they're putting a salesperson in front of people who are just putting random things in a jar. But that, that might cover a few things like Vern Cox's head and his bleach solution, which wasn't MMS, but was just another bleach that he was making on his farm. But that one very quickly became a pretty popular cancer treatment, etc. And I guess hopefully the new legislation will at least do enough to stop that level of nonsense from happening. Unless it's a sacrament, which I'm really unsure. (laughs) (laughs) I suspect his cover's been blown on that one. (laughs) Yeah, the Genesis Genesis Church three of Vern Coxhead's farm might might get a free pass. So it seems like overall with this legislation, we've had a couple of little tidy ups that have been kind of positive. A whole bunch of stuff has not changed and a scary amount of backsliding, like the amount of new bad stuff that's been added seems a lot more than the good stuff that's been tightened up. Is that is that a fair assessment? Uh, I don't think there's been a whole heap of bad stuff added. I think it's probably similar. I think there's been a few areas where they've sorted out the wording and realised it was wacky, but I guess it's now clear, you know, this is what it is, and these are the areas that we will need to poke. And if we can deal with those, 
and will make any traction on them before the regulations are finalised, and that would be time well spent um, because we're not we don't get a redo of this. So four years down the track, um, we don't get a time machine to go back and do it again. Um, it was almost 40 years since the last legislation was overhauled, so um, we're all going to be slightly older before this happens again. So we've got a window, and, you know, they're not going to be taking submissions, you know, the last few months before it goes to law, so we need to start looking at this now um, mm. and how we can get in the door and have a real impact with the people shaping regulations. Of course, this might all be moot if there's a change of government and uh, some crazies get in that decide that things should oh, be more no. free. Yeah, we, I think we just have to, was it someone saying, basically, from now on, I'm just ignoring everything anyone says that's a politician because it's just silly season and who knows, nobody got the crystal ball for that one. So um, we've just kind of got to check on and, you know, this is legislation. We know that. It's highly unlikely that a political party is going to get in that's going to completely wholesale throw out this piece of legislation. There's a lot of a lot to it, um, yeah. and it just doesn't feel like something that you could easily draw a line through. So we will mm. need to live with this, and we need to work out how we can get in the, in the door. Yeah, they certainly would need to come up with something to replace it with, and that would require a similar level of public consultation as the, the this particular act has gone through. So, so Mark, are you rich yet? Am I rich? No, I'm Mark. What do you mean, rich? Like monetarily rich? Monetarily rich from all those investments you were making under advice of a Chinese friend. I, I wish I was. I, I wish that I had the confidence to trust scammers and that they weren't just trying to scam me. I mean, if those two things were true, if I was able to risk a lot of my money and uh, and if they weren't lying to me, I'd be fine. But yeah, the I've, I've written so far about one of two scams that I've deliberately got myself embroiled in. Um, and there's a second one that will be coming in the newsletter the week after next. But this first one um, I described as catfishing. Um, there was a little bit of joke at work around um, me posting pictures of my noodles to try and pretend to be more Asian, which I did on WeChat, which is the Chinese uh, all-in-one social media app. Like, apparently, Elon Musk is trying to make X. It does payments. It does social media. It does chat functionality. It's got a bit of everything. So I posted some noodle pictures on that for a laugh. I've got an account on there with two friends, but I wanted more friends to like my noodle pictures. And there's a there's an ability to make friends by shaking your phone, which I did. And it wasn't very successful, but one person interacted with me. And that was my first red flag. The first question that, hang on a minute, th this isn't right. Is somebody actually responded to me? She liked my noodle pictures. And this is noodles. We, we've had jokes about how this might be a euphemism for penis. It is not. These are pictures of me making Chinese style noodles, which are absolutely gorgeous, even if I do uh, boast about that myself. But yeah, so I, I, she liked them and then she started chatting with me um, and I could see the profile picture. She's young, Chinese, good looking. So this is the second red flag straight away. And, you know, these red flags are starting to pile up. Then within a few hours of chatting, she asked, 
could we move the conversation to encrypted um, chat app Telegram? Presumably WeChat is monitored by the Chinese government and Telegram's a lot harder for them to do. So now we have our third red flag, moving the chat to a new platform. Um, that's something's weirds going on here. I mean, obviously I knew, I knew at the first red flag, I knew as soon as I got message that something was up, but yeah, rather than shutting them down, I, I just ran with this one and I kind of enjoyed it. So we started having a chat and she was really nice talking about how she's currently living in Sydney and uh, how she runs a textile business, but especially during COVID, she's been supporting this business with another business she's got, which is investments. And she started to talk about how, with the help of her auntie, she's been able to make good money from investing. What I was really fascinated with this early conversation was that this took a while. There was a lot of just chit chat. There was a lot of effort put in at her end to make friends with me, uh, to try and be nice to me, compliment my noodles, and then start to send me pictures of how her life was going. So, you know, I got I got a few pictures of her legs, the very nice legs, but I got one in a tea shop. I got one at the gym. I got one of her legs walking down the street somewhere in Sydney. Um, and she talked about, you know, her plans for life, the place in Sydney that she's hoping to build her home when she's got enough money. And then she started talking about how, you know, she's doing very well monetarily. Would I be interested in maybe having a slice of the pie as well? So she described a little bit more of this scheme that her auntie has a team of analysts who basically give her tip offs. And these tip offs are times when you should buy and sell. They're fluctuations in the market that I later learned were called nodes. And apparently the analysts were able to successfully predict these nodes. And if you bought when they said buy, and if you sell when they say, they sell, then you're going to make yourself some good money. And it's, you know, I, I could see how people get scammed by this. This this is sounding kind of believable. Again, a little bit iffy. One of the things in the conversation as, as we went through these different exercises was building up my trust and telling me to just trust that when I'm told to do this, do it. When I'm told to buy, buy. When I'm told to sell, sell. Um, and the way they start, which builds up the confidence is by getting you to set up a dummy account. So they have this fake trading app they've built. And in this fake trading app, you can buy and sell gold and platinum and silver and lots of different cryptocurrencies. Um, far as I can tell, I've pulled the back end to bits and or whatever I get of code from the back end to bits. It's it's a whole bunch of made up nonsense. And I watched, we were trading gold one night and I watched the price of gold and I watched the price of gold in their app that they were training me on. The two did not match at the point at which the price of gold suddenly rose after I'd been told to buy. In reality, the price of gold was not going up like that. And when it suddenly dropped again, just after I was told to sell, that didn't happen either. The price of gold sat pretty stable for the whole time. But the way they did it was they had me on this app with this fake account. They had me first invest a very tiny bit of money just to learn how to press the right buttons. And this took quite a while to do. I was trying to go as slowly as possible. And then a few nights later, there was the first real tip off, which again, I used my dummy account with fake money. And she had me buy some amount of gold. It was like 0.2 or something. The number didn't really make much sense to me, but I bought a bit of gold. I sold it at the right time when I was told, and I made 400 fake 
American dollars. But the conversation around all of this, I mean, this is building up to me basically spending my real money. But the thing that fascinated me and what I did with my article was try to post in as much interesting conversation as I could find around this is how she was building up to it and the different tactics you could see that these people use in order to try and hook someone in. So we've had those red flags, but I was getting told excited things about how maybe I could learn to fly a plane and maybe when I get rich, I could buy an aeroplane and maybe I could fly to Australia and meet her. Maybe we could fly around the world together. Wouldn't this be a nice thing? I mean, who knows the type of people that get conned by this, but maybe like the frog boiling in water, if it's slow and gradual, maybe this does a good job of it. But yeah, so there was talk about this. She also talked about her philanthropy. She had this story about how not only is she doing this money to make her rich, but also she's helping the poor children in a mountainous region in China. And it's not something I put in the article, but it turns out that I'd been to that mountainous region in China. So I don't think she was expecting that. It was it, it was like, oh, yeah, I've been around there. You know, where's the village? And then there was, oh, uh, you know, the village, you wouldn't know the name of it. And she gave me a name, which the only thing I could find when I searched for it, and this was really interesting, the only thing I could find with that name was a Chinese restaurant in Sydney, which makes me very suspicious. <laughs> given that she's meant to be in Sydney. Um, it might not be what was going on. It might be a coincidence. So the other things we did were things like we had a, a video chat. And this was surprising. I, I pushed for a video chat a little bit after she mentioned it first. So she mentioned it. And I thought, well, now that she's mentioned it, maybe, you know, the only reason she'd mentioned it probably is because they are willing to do this. They wouldn't mention it if this wasn't something that they're able to do. So once she'd mentioned it, once I started pushing for it. And after a couple of nights, I managed to get on a video chat. The video chat was weird as hell. There was something weird with her face. She looked nice enough. Didn't look from what I could tell, like the woman in the photos that I was given. But it was a young Chinese woman. But the face was weird. Like there was some kind of video filter over it or or something going on so i wonder whether maybe they've obscured who the person is but it also also felt like a hostage video uh the woman that was talking to me it was a plain white background she was sitting square to what looked like an office desk and it looked like you know it was a desktop pc that she was connecting this was not a young socialite in an expensive house in sydney staying with her auntie which i've been told it was this was some poor woman in a basement in a building somewhere in beijing i think who'd basically suddenly been shoved in front of a camera but only a camera not a microphone because the microphone didn't work which meant that the video chat could not go on for more than a few seconds so we hung up the video chat because it was a little bit uncomfortable with her not being able to talk um, and then we had a, vid a voice call and the voice call was again, just a couple of minutes. And then she made her excuses. She needed to talk to her parents, but I did get to voice talk to some woman with a Chinese accent. Now, one thing I've been reminding myself all the way through this exercise is that actually when I've been text chatting and on telegram with this person, it's more likely to be a man, I think. It's probably going to be a guy. You know, much as in my head, I'm getting the pictures of this person in Sydney and I'm thinking, you know, this is a woman because of how the conversation's going. I just had to keep myself in check and keep reminding myself it's probably a guy that's running through this script as part of the conversation and it gets handed to a woman whenever they need to make it look like it's a woman. And the other thing I thought, given that, as I said, I think 
this is all being run from China. But what I think is going on, because all the photos that I was sent of this woman's life in Sydney, none of them I could find with a reverse image search. None of them were bringing anything up at all in tin eye or google image search i think what's possibly going on is that there is one person who's in on the scam who's living a good life in china who's taking these photos and uploading them and then there's a bunch of people running the scam who are all pretending that this these photos are from them but they've just got this one woman who seems to be living a high life she's going to nice italian restaurants she's going out clubbing um never got a picture of the face properly but you know i got picture picture of her arm where she had a stamp from having been out clubbing for the night and things like this so I think there's there is some effort going on to make it look realistic. Um, and I do think there is someone probably in Sydney that's generating this content or has generated this content. But I really got the feeling like it was quite possibly being done in near real time for that kind of realism feel. But yeah, so basically they've done a good job. I can see how people would get pulled in. But of course, eventually it's going to get to the point where they're going to ask me for my money. And my assumption is like the way they could do this scam, that they could get away with it more likely is that they get me to upload my money somewhere. And then they get me to take part in a deal where it doesn't work, where it fails. And they go, Oh my God, we weren't expecting the price of gold to crash like that. It turns out you've lost all your money. And if that happened, I'd walk away feeling like an idiot, but I wouldn't feel like I was scammed. I'd feel like I was a victim of bad luck. I think it's more likely that as soon as I transferred my money, it they just stopped contacting me and the whole thing would disappear, right? Because where you transfer your money, I was given two options, international bank transfer or into an anonymous crypto wallet. So You suspicious. might have got hit with some <laughs> weird fees and stuff to release the money. Yeah. It yeah. Like which one of those would have been safer? I, I, um, I wouldn't be think the international bank transfer like a office block there and they're not in like a call center environment all doing this and doing the pictures on script and stuff. And then when you, they have to do the video call, yep, they just jump in a yeah, side. It, it, like it feels like it's quite a professional job, um, not something that's been done, you know, from home, like it's been farming people. Yeah. And there, there is a bunch of conversation there, there's like sometimes you can tell when someone's typing, you know, in an app where it gives you the little dots and you can see they're typing for a while. So I think they have people who are good enough, conversant enough in English that I am having a to and fro conversation. But then sometimes you'd end up with a bit of text that would turn up and it's like, well, that's just come from GPT like like this this woman knows nothing about the agricultural industry in new zealand so she's just asked gpt what are the main industries in new zealand and pasted the result or he has done this so some of it feels real time but generated and the weird thing that i go into in the first article about this is where twice in a row i was sent a little bit of text that just said negative prefix in brackets and the first time I was sent that, it was like, that was weird. I asked, what's that? And she ignored it. The second time I asked the next day, why did you say negative prefect? She ignored it. And it's like, I'm not putting up with that. I am I am pushing her until I get an answer. And after a minute or so, she 
spun this story about how uh, negative prefix is something I don't need to know about now. It's kind of a need to know basis. And maybe I'll I'll be party to this later, but it's to do with the analysts. And it, it was some nonsense. But basically, she, it seems like this person tried to spin this story into something. I wonder whether it's just a way of getting a human type response from some kind of AI bot where they, you know, they're putting things in and they're getting it to kind of translate to a more natural language. And so because both the questions I'd asked before then, the art, the logical answer that I was expecting from them was no. And so the fact that both times I get this negative prefix in brackets suggests that they were trying to find a kind of human English way of saying no to me, um, but they accidentally pasted in the prompt instead of the result of the prompt. So it was fascinating to see um and yet you know the manipulation carried on um so after we'd done this first trade and i'd made my 400 dollars or whatever it was she sent me a picture of her pouring a glass of wine to celebrate my victory we talked about how much she made she made i don't know a few hundred thousand dollars she told me she had 20 million dollars um apparently she's hoping to afford this nice house in sydney eventually but she can't afford it with 20 million dollars that seems a little bit odd to me. Um, but Sydney are pretty expensive. Yeah, and she's picked a very nice place in Sydney. It, it really is. Um, a, a, I'd love to live there. So we, we carried on with the conversation. We sent each other pictures of teas and coffees that we were drinking and places we'd been, Bondi Beach from her and the local cafe in Wellington from me. Um, and then one night I figured I'd be a little bit cheeky. She asked about me investing my money and was I ready to invest my real money? And I said, well, you said the other night you have $20 million. How about you just lend me a million of that? I use that to make a trade or two. And then once I've got enough money to get myself up and running, I can give you the million back. And then you're back to where you were before. And I've I've got a little bit to get started on. This did not go down well at all. This was a little bit too cheeky. I, I think I pushed a little bit too far. So I spent the next day basically being accused of drinking fake booze over and over and over again. It was this repeated phrase that keep, kept coming up. Are you drinking fake booze? Are you on fake booze? Uh, <laughs> I, I'm guessing it's a Chinese thing, like bootleg alcohol must be a thing that they deal with in China. But these accusations just kept coming. And then Eventually, they got over it and they were like, no, we need to push on. We've invested probably by this time. It's like 12 or 20 hours. There's a lot of hours they put into it. Obviously, a lot of hours I put into it as well. But I was getting an article out of it. It was worth it for me. But they decided ignore the fact that I asked for a million dollars, get over that. And let's see if we can get him to upload real money. So we talked about how it's time to do a real deal. The very first thing they had was this KYC verification in the app. So there was a place in the app where I had to tell them what's my income, what's my level of education. And then I had to upload my ID. And at this point, it's like, well, obviously, I'm not going to do this. Everything up until then was done within a virtualized environment that was as secure as I could make it. Brand new account. So everything was basically isolated and nothing was linked back. I mean, my name was there, but none of the accounts were linked to any account that I have anywhere. So it was all as safe as I could make it in the half hour I had to set that up. Um, but uploading photo ID of either my passport or my driver's license I'm not that stupid. I'm not going to do that. So I basically said to her, there's no national ID card in this country, so I don't have one of those. Um, I said my passport expired because of COVID and I haven't got a renewal, which is true. And I told her I 
don't drive, which is a lie, but I figured it's okay to lie in this circumstance. Um, so I said, hey, what can I do? I talked to the customer service representative that you told me to. They told me I needed one of these IDs. I said I didn't have any of them, and that's it. Totally changed the tone. She was not wanting to talk to me after that at all. Um, I got a little bit out of her. She said things like, don't be embarrassed. And I said, I'm not embarrassed. And then I said, I'm looking forward to seeing our relationship bloom and how, you know, I I could try and get a new passport, but it'll be a month. So we had a month to get to know each other better. Uh, I got silent. So then the next day, my Hail Mary, my Chinese colleague at work had given me some leaflets from uh, Falun Gong that she'd been handed in the train station. So uh, down with the CCP kind of stuff. So I took some pictures of those and because I'd already talked to her about politics and she'd shut me down very quickly. I do not talk about politics at all. And I thought, oh, obviously, there's even on Telegram and encrypted channel, she is concerned about the risk of talking about Chinese politics. So I sent like four pictures of these anti-CCP leaflets. And I think that was the the last I ever heard from her. Um, I, I sent some sad messages about how I miss her lots and she didn't respond. She slash he didn't respond at all to that. So that was the end of it. Basically, that that was my scam journey. I absolutely loved it. It was so much fun. I really want to do it again. I did one more scam at the same time because I coincidentally got another text message at around the same time asking if I was interested in a job that would pay good money for clicking a button in an app. I will write this up in a couple of weeks. It's another fun story. But yeah, this one, it's just fascinating. I mean, if if anybody's got their nouse about them and is contacted by these people, and if you're sure you're not going to fall for it and you're not going to accidentally make a slip up, I would recommend just having a little play with these people and talking with them just to see them in action is is really fascinating. But I, I can definitely see how people get scammed. Like, you know, they flatter you in so many different ways and it's it, it's pretty good going. It's probably been honed over a period of years. But yes, I still have all my money. I have not actually been scammed. Possibly. Uh, they were being very careful politically because they might have suspected that you were actually uh, a government employee who was trying to trap them. <laughs> you were trying to catfish them. Yeah, Maybe they were worried about that. I don't know. <laughs> I think it's more likely they just saw me as a sent, pain in the ass. Sorry? I think as soon as you sent those photos, it was all over the, the Falun Gong stuff that would have... Yeah. I think they probably would have thought you were government, but if they didn't, it would have been quite potentially dangerous and not worth it and that that's possibly the topic for another article because the falun gong material in itself is just nonsense in places like they have some legitimate gripes with the government and the government is not happy with them and has treated them really badly but the the way they word things and some of the claims they make about china and its involvement in covid there's just no evidence for it. You know, they're, they're an aggrieved party to an extent I can understand them wanting to lash back from the safety of another country. But yeah, I mean, Falun Gong are just spreading their own version of nonsense, trying to counter the Chinese government's horribleness. All right. Well, we'll look forward to your uh, future article. Yes. Uh, so what's on the calendar? I think the first things first, this Saturday, Friday, September 22nd at 6 p.m., we have our usual Skeptics in the Pub meetup at the inside the Intercontinental Hotel in their hotel lounge. It's usually a good time. I won't be there. I'm going to be square. 
That uh, was Friday night, right? Just just Friday to clarify. Night. Yeah, cool. the 22nd. And then now, Mark, tell me, is the science-based healthcare activism in the pub going ahead on Thursday next week? It is. And not only is it going ahead, but I already have a complaint to make next Thursday. A friend was kind enough to send me some nonsense he found on Facebook for my birthday today. So I have a complaint like almost ready to go. It looks like it might almost write itself. It's some EMF protecting pendant. So next Thursday, Fork and Brewer, six o'clock or six thirty. Yeah, come along. And then um, for the Dunedin skeptics in the pub, they'll have their usual meetup at Umbrellos Kitchen and Bar in Dunedin, obviously, on Thursday, October twelfth at six p.m. Good. And in Auckland, there will be a skeptics in the pub on the third Tuesday, the third of October at the Dice and Fork. And is there maybe a conference happening in November? Yes, there is. Yep. You can go on, online and um, buy your tickets at conference.skeptics.nz. It'll be happening from the 24th to the 26th. A fun time to be had by all, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Wow, Craig, you made that sound so exciting. <laughs> it's late at night. I need to go to bed. <laughs> well past yeah. my bedtime. Fair enough. <laughs> but it is, it's a good event. Very enjoyable. Looking forward to being there. Good. All right, you have been listening to the Yena podcast. If you'd like to give us some feedback, you can contact us at uh, podcast at skeptics.nz. We'll see you all next time. Bye. Ta-ta. Bye. See ya.